Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Special Counsel Jack Smith continues his investigation into the Mar-a-Lago documents. Smith is reportedly compiling evidence about Trump's knowledge about the existence of the documents and about the proper declassification process, undercutting Trump's claims that the documents were declassified. In other news, a panel of Fifth Circuit judges appears likely to restrict access to the abortion pill mifepristone following oral arguments in a case challenging FDA approval of the drug. And the United States Attorney for the District of Massachusetts has resigned after a DOJ Inspector General's ethics probe found various instances of misconduct. Preet Bharara and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. So turning from the Mar-a-Lago documents case to the continuing saga over that one abortion medication, Mifeprestone, there was oral argument in the Fifth Circuit. Didn't go great for people who think the FDA was right in loosening restrictions around the administering of Mifeprestone. Right, Joyce? Yeah, you know, the judges, this was a panel of three Fifth Circuit judges, and it seemed relatively clear after the argument that they are on a trajectory that means that they'll revoke the approval of the drug and restrict access to it. This was not a friendly panel, and the Fifth Circuit has become a little bit of a laugh line for people who are used to really feeling protective of the integrity of the courts. You know, you and I do this a lot, Preet. We've talked about how judges move beyond whatever political party appointed them to the bench, and they make decisions based on the facts and the law. Increasingly, it's becoming a little bit difficult in the Fifth Circuit to keep a straight face on that one. And I really do believe that most judges, whatever their personal views are, set them aside to judge cases. But particularly this panel, which was, it consisted of three people who've been pretty partisan on the issue of abortion. It's a tough sell. Yeah, just going back to this issue of deference to administrative agencies and, you know, some of the latent hypocrisy that goes on with respect to this, you know, on, on prior occasions, as we've discussed, conservative justices and jurists have said, well, when the FDA is demanding more restrictions on the administration of a drug, and in particular, in one instance in the past, Mifeprestone, well, we should defer to the expertise of the agency. The agency knows best. Who are we to second guess? And here at Oral Argument, Judge Jim Ho, who I actually knew was Senator John Cornyn's chief counsel back when I worked in the Senate, says, quote, and I thought this was very striking, quote, I don't understand this theme that FDA can do no wrong. We are allowed to look at the FDA just like we're allowed to look at any agency. That's the role of the courts, end quote. It's a bit of an overstatement as to the role of the courts, is it not? You know, it really is, because while the courts can look procedurally at whether the FDA complies with Administrative Procedure Act and other rules, here he's talking about something different, and that's whether the courts can disagree with expert decisions that the FDA makes based on the science. And, and that's the overreach here. Yeah, look, there are circumstances in which, and this has been true for a long time, that courts can strike down an agency interpretation or rein in a rogue agency that is either acting beyond its bounds 
or is interpreting some ambiguity in the statute in an unreasonable way. But you know that statement by Jim Ho, and I didn't look at the entire oral argument, so maybe he there's a caveat elsewhere. But this is an incredibly broad statement or suggestion that they can willy-nilly, they meaning the court, can willy-nilly do anything they want in terms of substituting their judgment, even in the face of reasonable interpretation by an expert agency. And that's not how we've been doing things for a very long time in this country. No, and it's it's this distinctly conservative position, this dislike, almost a pathological dislike of what they term the nanny state, without thinking that although there are areas among the executive branch agencies where reasonable people can differ about what they should be permitted to do, they make decisions that we rely on every day in in many facets of our lives. And you can't strip out the ability of the administrative agencies to make substantive decisions based on their particular expertise. You know, I mentioned what Judge James Ho said. I think you've had a reaction or have a reaction to what one of the other judges said both in substance and in tone. Judge Jennifer Elrod took what's a really unusual step in oral argument. I've heard it happen a time or two, but not very often. She chastises the lawyer for the drug company, and and she complains that the language that was used in court filings is a personal attack on the district judge, Matthew Kaczmarek in Texas, and she actually gives the lawyer the opportunity to back down from those statements. It's a little bit of a a patronizing exchange, frankly, on the part of the judge. And the lawyer then says, you know, judge, we didn't intend to say anything negative about the judge personally. We're just criticizing the ruling when we say things like it's an unprecedented attack by the judiciary. So I think this is a great practice point for people who do appellate work. My view has always been that if you have anything negative to say about the district judge, You say it in your rough draft, and then you completely excise it from the brief that gets filed. You really can never do anything critical of the judge, even if you think they didn't read your brief or they weren't paying attention or they got it wrong. You need to very clearly focus on the legal arguments without using any adjectives to describe the district judge, because what you do when you do that is you give a judge like Judge Elrod the opportunity to make the argument about you, the lawyer, not about your client and the facts in the case. So I think this was a little bit of a misstep here. But it's a little hard, right? I mean, it's a fine line because by definition and of necessity, when you're saying that a lower court judge, the district court judge made an error, I mean, you're literally saying the judge overstepped his or her bounds, made an error, exceeded his or her authority. I mean, you're using phrases that have legal meaning that are necessary to use because you're basically saying they got it wrong. And they got it wrong because they misunderstood the facts or they misunderstood the law or they forgot about a certain argument. Isn't all of that deeply critical? Yeah. I mean, it's a very fine line. You're right to say that. Here in in the brief, the drug company's lawyers use terms like, quote, unprecedented judicial assault. In another place, they referred to what the district judge had done when he ruled as a relentless, one-sided narrative. Whether or not those comments are fair, you know, I sort of sort of tend to believe that they are fair characterizations. I think you have to be very careful about not saying things like that because then you get judges who want to make it be about you, the lawyer, personally and not about the case. You give them some ammunition. And that's what happened here. Particularly when you know, further to your point, that you're likely to get a panel 
that will have one or more, maybe all three, judges of a particular stripe who might be sympathetic to the claims made and the arguments that were adopted by the district court judge, right? Yeah, I think absolutely. You want to say this stuff in your rough you know, draft just to get it off your chest because you have to with a ruling that's as bad as the district judge's ruling here. And then you have to remember who you're writing for and take it out of the final draft. And what's up with this Comstock Act? Comstock Act, it's 150 years old. And at one point I did a little bit of reading about Mr. Comstock after who it's named and learned that he really had a lot of issues with women and this notion that women might educate themselves about public health And it's sort of remarkable when you think about the fact that Ben Franklin had actually written a treatise, you know, medical doctor, about abortion and about how women could terminate pregnancies. But Comstock wanted none of this in public life. Not only could you not distribute drugs, which is the issue here, you couldn't distribute information or literature that even spoke about abortion. So that's the law that we're looking at here. So just to recap the procedural posture and the arc of this. We had a district court judge who held a particular way in a way that you and I don't agree with and that I think is harmful to reproductive rights in the country. There was this sort of a side route to the Supreme Court, not on the question of whether the decision was ultimately right or not right, but what the status quo would be. And the Supreme Court basically said, we're going to keep the status quo. That was an important issue here, at least for the near term, and said, Mifeprestone is going to be available until this thing is decided on the merits. And that's why I went back to the Intermediate Court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, that just had oral argument, as you and I have discussed. They will make their decision, almost certainly affirming the district court. And then it will necessarily go to the Supreme Court and be decided there. Am I right? I think that's exactly right. You don't have to take it, but I think the likelihood is, I mean, is there any circumstance in which the, the Supreme Court would not take this up? You know, I guess they could theoretically just affirm the Fifth Circuit, but on an issue that's this important, they will want to write to it. There are Supreme Court justices who will be delighted to have the opportunity to hint about more restrictive sorts of positions that they'll take. And there's also this interesting issue, you know, in this sort of side route shadow docket appeal, Justice Alito had made that controversial observation about whether or not the government would actually obey an order that ended the use of mifepristone. He questioned whether the Biden administration would follow a lawful order from a court. And the Justice Department was asked about that in oral argument. Obviously, the lawyer for the department made short shrift of that and said that the agency had never indicated it wouldn't follow an an order from a court. But I suspect that the justices may want to hammer on that a little bit more. That seems to be a new bugaboo for them, this notion that a democratic administration won't abide by the rule of law. Yeah, and then the last point I guess we should make, which we haven't addressed yet in this episode, is the standing issue. And you described and defined what the standing issue was very well either last week or the week before, which seems to be a pretty powerful legal argument. Some might call it technical, but it's, I think, a lot more substantial than technical, right? It means that just because I don't like a law in California as a resident of New York, I don't have the right, I don't have standing to go into court to fight some, you know, housing regulation. In California, I don't have standing. That's an extreme case. Right. And here, the government lawyers and the company lawyers were arguing about the lack of standing on the part of the anti-abortion doctors They said, among other things, quote, those doctors do not prescribe mifeprestone. They do not provide abortions. 
No specific doctor faces irreparable harm. And they say their claims rest on cascading chains of speculation about potential future events. The court, <laughs> uh, the judges on the court, it's very interesting. Instead of taking seriously and suggesting they're ultimately going to disagree with the lack of standing arguments, instead, we're kind of disparaging. Um, one of the judges said the person who was doing the oral argument was splitting words to get the lawsuit thrown out. And they didn't seem to take seriously. It's one thing not to ultimately agree with the standing argument, but they didn't even seem to take it very seriously at all. If the lawyer had said that about the district court judge, I suspect that one of the panel judges would have criticized her for demeaning the judge, right? But here we've got judges on the panel questioning the lawyer and sort of disparaging her. This isn't really a legal argument on standing. This is just an indication that this panel has no interest in ruling on that basis. And this is a case where there really isn't standing. There's no actual harm suffered by these plaintiffs. There's no reason to believe that a court ruling in their favor will diminish any harm. If this was anything other than a case about abortion, I continue to believe it would have been tossed on standing from the get-go. Yeah, and maybe I'm being repetitive here, but you know, something we try to do on the show, and you and I have said this many, many times, is on any point of law or factual disagreement or legal disagreement, it's usually not a tie, right? There could be a close question, but at the end of the day, whether you're an observer or you're a participant in the case or you're someone adjudicating the case as a judge, you decide, you know, argument A is better than argument B. And sometimes when you say argument A is better than argument B, argument B is ridiculous BS, Yes. right? And some of those claims are made by the former president with respect to executive privilege or mental declassification. And it's one thing to say argument A is better than argument B there, where B is just ridiculous, nonsensical, you know, asinine stuff. But sometimes argument A is better than argument B, but argument B is a serious argument. And it's a substantial argument and needs to be taken seriously. And when you see serious arguments not being taken seriously and being looked at, as this panel did with respect to standing, like the standing argument as argument B is BS and nonsense, which it's not, that causes me to have concern about whether or not the panel is just focusing on the outcome as opposed to the principles and the process. It really goes back to where we started on this topic and this increasing concern about the seriousness of Fifth Circuit judges about following the rule of law as opposed to just being culture warriors. Yeah, so, you know, when, when you assess arguments and people in their daily lives too, when you assess arguments, it, it's not enough to understand and know is A better than B. You want to know how serious B is and you want to evaluate B on its own terms before you decide that A is better. And when questions are close and A and B are close, you have to take, I think, all factors into account. You know, it's also a matter of, I mean, I guess judges don't have to be respectful anymore because they have life tenure. But it's also a matter of respecting good faith arguments made by adversaries in a case. And I don't believe that happened here. And that makes me doubt their good faith. So, Preet, there's been another story in the news. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet, but the United States attorney, the Biden appointee in the District of Massachusetts, has resigned. Her name is Rachel Rollins. She was the first African-American woman to be U.S. attorney in Boston. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. And to the many of you who've chosen to join the Insider community, thank you for supporting our work. 
Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Designed for work. 